Howdy folks and welcome to the Source Code Podcast brought to you by Ninja Jobs. I'm Chris Sanders. We've got a great guest lined up, but before we get to him, I want to talk to you about something very near and dear to my heart. As we're getting closer to the end of the year, we're into the holiday season, and we're starting our big funding push for the Rural Technology Fund. Now, if you're familiar with me at all, you know I started the Rural Tech Fund really about 10 years ago. Uh, I'm from a rural area. I didn't have a lot of opportunity growing up, and rural areas are, are just so much more greatly disadvantaged than urban and suburban areas in terms of education and opportunity. So I started the Rural Tech Fund to introduce kids to computer jobs. I sincerely believe computer jobs have the power to be transformational in the lives of students. Uh, I'm a living proof of that. I was born into poverty, my parents lived in poverty, and their parents lived in poverty. Fortunately, I found computers, had a few people who were interested in me and uh, pushed me towards that career path, and here I am. I'm no longer in poverty, and God willing, when I have children, they won't be in poverty either. So it was certainly transformative for me. It ended the generational poverty that existed in my family, and I think it has that power with many others as well. So that's what we're trying to do with the RTF. We're trying to introduce more kids to computer science and computer-related fields by going into those areas, working with their teachers, and helping give them the things they need to get kids excited excited about uh, technology jobs. So we started very small. Our first year, we just had a single student's worth of impact. We gave away one scholarship. The next year, two students. The next year after that, four students. And I have to tell you, this year looks like we're going to reach 30,000 students in 2017. 30,000 students impacted and introduced to technology through the work we've done with the Rural Technology Fund. Now, if you've already contributed, that helps a ton. That makes a big difference in what we're doing. We certainly appreciate it. But we're really trying to round out the year well and get us well on track to our next goal. I announced our next goal pretty recently. It's a big one. We want to try to get to 100,000 students reached within the next two years. That's 100,000 students across rural America. And I tell you, that's a huge goal. We're currently in about 30 states. We want to get into the others. We want to be into all 50 by that time period as well. So chances are we probably impacted a community near where you are. Now, I tell you, a lot of these towns are places you've never heard of, places like Mayfield, Kentucky, which is where I'm from. I tell you, it's uh, it was the middle of nowhere for most people, but it was the center of the world for me, and it is for these kids as well. So we can really, really use your help. Um, even the smallest contributions help. Uh, certainly, we love to partner with companies and work in areas that they're interested in or rural areas outside the cities they may be in. So if your company is interested in sponsoring as well, that certainly will help out a lot. Very proud to say that the Rural Technology Fund is entirely volunteer-led. We don't pay salaries, so 100% of the donations go straight to the cause and straight to the classroom in these rural areas. If you're interested in that, you can read more and contribute at ruraltechfund.org donate. You have an option there for a one-time donation, or you can set up a recurring donation either via PayPal or via Patreon. Again, this cause means a lot to me. It's one of the reasons I do a lot of the things I do, and I greatly appreciate your support. Our guest this week is a good friend of mine, Grady Summers, who is the Chief Technology Officer of FireEye. And certainly we're all familiar with FireEye that acquired Mania that holds a pretty important place in cybersecurity from the vendor perspective. Now, it's no secret I worked for Mania and FireEye for a while. Uh, I knew Grady very initially soon after I got hired. Uh, he was leading a broader project that I was working as a part of. And eventually I would end up working directly for Grady. Grady was my direct superior for a while. And Grady is really one of the, the good guys. He is in a leadership executive position because 
he can also really walk the walk and not just talk the talk. He he knows this stuff. He knows the technology. Uh, and he's also just one of the great leaders I've had the opportunity to be around. I, I pride myself and with every boss I've had, I've had good ones and I've had bad ones. And I pride myself in being able to learn something from the good ones and the bad ones alike. And I was very fortunate to have Grady. He was one of the really good bosses um, in my life and certainly a guy I'd go to battle with. So I was glad to have him on. I was glad he could spend some time with us. He's obviously incredibly busy with all that they've got going on over there at FireEye, but he gave us an hour of his time to talk about his story and talk about some of his perspective. So we learn about his life growing up, and particularly I think it gets really, really interesting towards the end of it when we talk about kind of the future of security. We talk about security buzzwords, which ones actually maybe have something behind them, which ones don't. Uh, I, I learned a lot from our conversation, and I hope you will too. So without further ado, let's get on over to Grady. Grady, thanks so much for joining me today. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing good, Chris. Thanks a lot for having me on the program. I'm looking forward to it. I'm a big fan of the podcast, by the way. So, ah, oh, thank thank you so much. We've had we've had a few Fire Eye Mandiant folks on there, so I'm glad we were able to uh, to get you here as well. Now, I think I think all the listeners know Mandiant, they know Fire Eye, but uh, tell the listeners what it is you do there. Yeah, so I'm Chief Technology Officer at FireEye, and what that means for us is I've got a, uh, a few different parts in the org, but I have a team of uh, global CTOs that are a little more external-facing, like to understand the market and work with our customers. And then where the rubber really hits the road is I'm responsible for our product direction, so I've got a team of um, uh, product management uh, that kind of defines the future, where we're going with the products. And then uh, a peer of mine, Jason Martin, has all the engineering. So Jason and I and our organizations work together to, to make FireEye products. Awesome. So that's uh, that's a big job, it sounds like. I mean, y'all, y'all have a lot of products. Y'all have a lot of different things going on. And really, y'all kind of have products in almost every sec- major sector of information security, right? Yeah, it's been one of uh, the fun challenges of the job is the company grew really quickly, uh, acquired a few other companies along the way, and we ended up with this portfolio of products that uh, didn't necessarily work together. And so a big part of the job is like thinking ahead a few years, like where do we want to be as a company? How do we pull this together and, into like a more cohesive portfolio that really helps our customers? So I enjoy the job because it's a cool blend of strategy and kind of forward thinkingness. Um, but also, you know, the real application of getting good products out the door on a regular basis. So it's a good operational strategic balance. Awesome. Well, I want to talk about you a little bit and kind of your history and kind of build up to, to where you are now. And I guess that all starts with kind of where you call home. And now I know you're a Pennsylvania guy now. Were you born and raised in Pennsylvania? No, I was born and raised um, mostly in Texas as a kid. So I was born in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, I, when I was about 10 years old, my family uh, moved up to Virginia. So uh, Texas and, and Virginia were home for me growing up. Uh, you know, now I do live in, in uh, Pennsylvania. I live on a, a big farm here, and it's, it's kind of neat. I live, uh, our kids are being raised on, as a fourth generation growing up on this farm. It's where my, uh, my wife and, and her mom and her grandparents uh, grew up. So it's, uh, it's really fun being out here, and it's a nice kind of change of pace sometimes from uh from the heavy travel when i get to actually be at home and enjoy this yeah that's that's awesome now san antonio and then to virginia so was that mostly living in in cities or was it kind of a mixture of cities and kind of countryside or yeah i grew up in the city in san antonio my my dad was a civil engineer and he worked at randolph air force base uh, you know one of the big bases down there in san antonio for a while as part of the army corps of engineers um my mom stayed home growing up, and uh, you know it was it was fun. I uh, spent a lot of time outdoors growing up in Texas. Um, through my dad's work, also got an early exposure to you know to technology, 
And so uh, it was was fun kind of cutting my teeth on some of the computers that he would bring home at the time. Um, But yeah, I grew up in the the city there and more rural when I moved up to Virginia. Um, But a lot of fun. It was as interesting as any kid, you know, you make that big move. Um, And so for us, it was weird, you know, coming up to what we we perceived as a northeast, but really now Virginia is really the south. But at the time, it seemed like a, a big move up north. Oh yeah. yeah, that was fun. So, so what kind of student were you in school? I mean, you said you were introduced to technology, you know, fairly early. I mean, were you always really super interested in that, and were you kind of like a big mega nerd, or were you just not really interested in school? Yeah, well, so it was interesting. You know, with the, the technology piece, I started getting into that at a pretty young age. Like, I remember very early growing up as as just a little kid. Um, we had like the I don't know if you remember like we had a TRS eighty, and then we had these. Um, like an Apple clone, the, the Franklin Ace uh, that my dad brought home. And, it, it, you know, I, I would dig into that stuff deeply. Like I loved uh, programming on that old, the old Apple clone. And I don't know if you remember, um, remember you could get those magazines uh, that would have like the <laughs> pages and pages of like basic code. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, the programs. Yeah. And I just remember sitting there for hours, like painstakingly copying it's funny at the time I mean, you just had to copy the code in and then, you know, just pray that the thing would actually run uh, when you went to execute it. And I just remember spending hours uh, trying to figure out why won't this thing run? Why is it throwing these errors? And, uh, you know, it's neat back then you, I mean, we didn't know where technology was headed. I wasn't doing it to learn computing or learn tech. I was doing it so I could create like a cool pong game or a, uh, like a, a text-based adventure game on the computer. But uh, I was fortunate that that threw me, you know, pretty deep into kind of debugging code and figuring things out. Uh-huh. Um, I remember my dad bringing home uh, one of those like suitcase computers. It was like, I don't know, an early compact or something. And this was probably early 90s. And uh, it was the first one I remember having a, a hard drive. And my dad was like, I said, how big is a hard drive? And he's like, oh, Grady, this thing is a 20 meg hard drive. I mean, good, <laughs> good luck ever filling this thing up. And... Uh, <laughs> So that was fun, but despite that, um, you know, I give a lot of credit to my mom. She she would push me really hard, and it was like she was the kind of mom where like a B on the report card was like, what's wrong with you? Like, why did you get a B? <laughs> um, and so she always pushed me, and and for career, like all through high school, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, and uh, I was really to me that was like success. I mean, I didn't, I barely knew what a lawyer did, but that was like a successful career to go into, and. Um, so kind of had this dream I was going to go to, uh, I really, at this time I was living in Virginia and I got into the college of William and Mary and it was a great law school. And I thought this is the path. Um, but funny enough, I went uh, to visit Grove city college, a little liberal arts school in Western Pennsylvania. And like something clicked, totally fell in love with the campus and decided I'd go there uh, for pre-law. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's just funny how, how you, know, you look back at, kind of random twists and turns that we have in, in our careers that get us to where we are. And uh, that like the computers kind of came back uh, to bite me and I would repair everybody's computers on the hall and I was building my own computers at the time. Uh-huh. And um, one day someone was like, why, why aren't you in computers? Why are you doing pre-law? And I was like, yeah, I don't know. Why, why am I? So <laughs> switched over to a, um, like an MIS major. Um, but I, I never really let one to let go of that dream of being a lawyer, so I major I had a dual major in poli sci and computers. Okay, now do you ever? I mean, you you work with a lot of lawyers now. Do you ever like look at them and talk to them and like regret it? Do you ever wish you had gone that route instead? So I mean, I, I still love arguing and debating things, and um, you know, really get like try to think through my position. I think though, 
that you know that kind of strain uh, like carries through regardless of your career. And I find now like having to argue my case and make my case on stuff. You know, I'm I'm the farthest thing from a lawyer right now, but at the same time, a lot of those skills like you know you still use them and in a technology career as well. So definitely don't regret the way things turned out. Yeah, I mean, especially, I mean, doing in your role, I mean, at the highest levels of information security, you're dealing with a lot of people who are very smart and have differing ways and opinions of doing things. And I mean, in a leadership role, oftentimes you're kind of mediating those things and, and helping, you know, draw out the best argument and mediate those arguments. I mean, you're almost like a judge in some ways. And, and yeah. so that, that kind of makes sense. You are, I mean, you know, not to jump too far ahead to where we are now, but uh, I find so much of my job now is, you know, it's a little bit of, you know, judging and arguing, making your case. It's a lot of you know, salesmanship, as much as I hate to say it, you know, so much of um, my role today and kind of defining the strategy for the company, you got to convince people and get them on board and sell them on your position. And so uh, even though we might be in a tech career, you got to draw on a lot of different skills to be successful. Mm-hmm. Well, I, and, and we can talk a little bit about that type of thing. I mean, I know one of the things you have to do is people come to you. You're, you're kind of in charge uh, to some degree of a lot of the products. And people come to you and say, hey, I have this great idea for a product. And maybe you have a couple people come to you with a similar idea and you kind of have to vet out, you know, is this viable? Is it going to work? Is it actually going to help people? I mean, can you talk a little bit about like like the challenge of that, not just from like evaluating the technology side, but also like because I imagine part of that too is evaluating like not only is this a good idea, but can we pull it off, and are the, do we have the people to do this? It's that's an interesting point you raise, Chris, because I, I struggle with it a lot. Um, we need to continue to innovate. I mean, you know, now I'm a CTO at a public company, um, we have public shareholders, and we have to constantly be innovating. Uh, and so I always want to encourage innovation and. Um, we do a, a really good job of this at Fire, I think. In fact, we're just concluding our uh, annual hackathon um, that our engineering org runs, and we get so many good ideas. But I'll often get someone will bring me an idea, like they've really spent a lot of time in it, they've thought through it. I just recently had someone bring an idea that they had actually in their own personal time invested and built out to a proof of concept. And um, without going into too much detail on it, it was such a cool thing, but it, it served a completely different part of the market than FireEye serves today. And I, it's probably nothing I hate more than having to tell someone like this is really cool and and I love what you've done here, but you know for a lot of practical reasons like you know if it's a product for the you know SMB space small businesses, um, you know for better or worse like FireEye doesn't have a sales force or a channel that really reaches into that part of the market and you have to say look this is a great idea, but for a lot of kind of boring business realities it's probably not something that we can bring to market right now, or it's too far afield or it's you know we're not we can't equip our sales force to, to adequately sell this. And, you know, it's a bummer to, that you can't carry through on every good idea like that. But, you know, what you try to do is, is channel that innovation, that, that passion into something that, you know, that makes sense for the company. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, you have a lot of smart people around you and, and someone comes up with an idea like this that maybe isn't going to work in the near term. And I guess to try to encourage them that, hey, you probably have a lot more good ideas than you. Yeah, right. And, and let them know, I think a big part of the job is having is being transparent about the challenges that we do face and where we need innovation. So if somebody has a lot of passion and enthusiasm and wants to work weekends on a, a neat kind of pet project, making sure that they understand like these are the gaps in the portfolio now and here's where we need to be going and encourage them to innovate along those lines. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Now, at Grove City College, you said you, you switched your major kind of to, to you know, computer-oriented things. What, what kind of stuff did you learn at that time in that place about computers? What was the college teaching? Uh, you know, I was, I was fortunate that although it was a, I, I majored in business computer systems, which would be called more like an MIS-type major now, um, 
Grove City also had a computer science program, and that MIS major was uh, very heavy into um, programming and um, you know data structure. I mean, I, I remember some just some very very technical classes. Um, of course, you know, given the time, it was a lot of uh, you know Fortran um, and C, and then you know late. I think my last year they added a Java course, for example. So I'm grateful that. Um, even though I didn't major in a pure computer science, it was a program that was very heavy on, on the technical. Mm-hmm. Did did I mean security? Obviously, you know, wasn't as as much of a consideration then. But I mean, what, was security ever talked about at all? You know, I can't even remember that it, that it ever came up. Um, and I, you know, of course, at the time, I, I never saw myself going into security per se. Um, I mean, it was it was kind of weird. I got so my first job out of school was at General Electric, and it was just one again one of those happenstance things that you look back on um and you know like a hallway conversation that changes the course of your your life but i had a friend uh who was a mechanical engineer and he worked at the grove city diesel engine plant for general electric and ge still makes these huge you know room-sized diesel engines for locomotives and, and marine application and um i i was paying my own way through college um you know, my, my family didn't have a lot of money. Um, and so it was either me taking loans or just paying as I went. I, I needed to start working my sophomore year. And I saw my buddy in the hallway. I'm like, hey, you work at that big factory down the road, right? Like, do they ever hire computer people? And he said, oh, yeah, actually, we, we need some, you know, computer interns. So he passed along my name. And, um, yeah, you know, security at the time was like the farthest thing from my mind. But, you know, I wanted a career in tech and I, I needed to get a, a paying internship and, Grove City Diesel Engine Plant was where I got started with that. Yeah, that's amazing. Now, Grove City said it was a liberal arts college. Yep, yeah, about okay. twenty four hundred students. Okay, now, now it, from that perspective, did you? I mean, were there any unique benefits you saw or that you thought about that you know came from going specifically to a liberal arts college as opposed to maybe a more traditional, you know, maybe an engineering focused school? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question too because you know, looking back, it's probably influenced the way I think about security a lot now. And that I think good security practitioners have like a, a you know a breadth of experience to draw on. And in Grove City, at the time, one of the reasons I chose it, in fact, it was known for this like um, Western Civilization core, where even if you were in a, a more technically oriented major, everybody had to take uh, like a you know a Western political uh, literature, Western political thought, uh, art. I know there are probably a half dozen courses like that. And I don't know, I think that stuff's really important, even for someone who wants a tech career, is to like get some broad foundational exposure to uh, kind of culture and the arts and, and politics. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you mentioned GE and, and moving over to, to GE. Now, was that was that the very first job you ever had, or was that just your first job out of college? Yeah, no, I, uh, I mentioned earlier my mom kind of always pushing me. And <laughs> I remember um, in Virginia, the day I became eligible for what they call like a worker's permit, I went and my mom took me over and I applied for it. So I was 14. And it, in, at the time in Virginia, when you were 14, you could start working. I mean, it was limited, only so many hours per week. But I started working in the mailroom um, of a, uh, a company that my mom worked at in the time in Virginia, uh, opening mail, sorting it, that type of thing. And um I always worked as much as I could through all the way up through your know, middle school and high school, um, just trying to, to earn money, doing side jobs. And so it was in a mail room or doing landscaping for a company or doing my landscaping on my own. I still love working outside. And I think working so many hours uh, doing landscaping, um, you know, partly to help pay for college probably, probably contributes to that. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it's funny you mention that. I did almost the exact same thing in terms of like Kentucky had a similar type of age where, where you were allowed to work at X age. And I remember uh, having my dad take me down to the local phone company because I knew at the time I was interested in computers. And I said, Dad, take me down here. I want to give him a resume. And of course, I didn't really have a resume. I was 14, but I made one up. And, it, <laughs> and, I, was, and I was like, here's my resume. And I walked in. I said, I want to see the boss. And uh, I, don't know why, awesome. I, I don't know why my dad let me do this, but I said, I want to see the boss. And I walked in and I said, hey, I hear y'all are doing neat things with uh, uh, wireless networking and I want to work for you. And he kind of, he was like, like he kind of laughed at me and was like, uh, you know, I don't think this is going to work, but I, I admire your initiative, kid. Oh, that's uh, cool. So my, my story didn't work out. I, it didn't get me the job, but I might have set my sights a little too high. Yeah, well, it's funny how much you learn from those early jobs. Like I, I can still so distinctly remember being in the mail sorting room and they would bring in uh, the mail and these like these totes and each tote had I don't know, so many pounds of letters in it. And I always remember every time I would go in, I had like this because it was boring work, to be clear. I mean, like mind-numbingly boring opening and then you had to sort you know based on whatever kind of letters were coming in sort them into all these different piles and get them into folders and get them on a cart and i would always track how many letters i would do per hour and then how many i could do per like shift i don't know if i went in for four hours and i kept a running log always and i'd always my game was always become more efficient than i was last time and i remember being so proud of at one point i got through i don't know like 10 totes of mail in a shift and um they, the person who ran the mail room was like, you know, it's great. You're efficient. Like you should definitely come back and, you know, consider a full-time job in the mail room. And I remember <laughs> thinking, well, um, I also picked up like spare work. Um, even when I would landscape or have another job, uh, I would sign up at, um, manpower had this thing where you could do, be a, like a medical transcriptionist and it could fit into very odd hours. So I would go to a hospital and, um, listen I don't know if you, they had these old, like, um, I guess they're like dictaphone machines. They had a foot pedal that you could, um, so you could let the tape play while you typed with both hands. And that was another thing, too. I would always just try to fly and, like, do as much transcription as I could. Um, and they were like, you should consider a full time career in, you know, medical transcriptionist. And um, I thought, oh, that's, that's an option, but probably not what I want to do in my life. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it sounds like you very much had the mindset the, that, you know, I have this job, I'm doing this thing, and I'm, I'm here, so I might as well, like, let's set some goals and let's, like, just try to do it as, as best as I possibly can. Yeah, you have to try to make that stuff fun and, like, continually challenge yourself, even in a, a role that doesn't feel challenging at the time. Um, which, funny enough, is that probably comes into play a lot now. When I, I talk to people, you know, we're in, happen to be in performance review season here at FireEye, and, you know, you'll, you'll talk with people on the team who say, hey, you know, my job's not challenging. I want a bigger job. Um, I'm dealing with this in a few cases right now. And I always stress, like, you got to, like, knock out the job that you're in now. Like, prove yourself an, a total champion in this job. You, you can't just say this job's dull and it's not challenging me, so I'm not, you know, performing t- to the highest level. Like, you got to crush the role that you're in, and then those, those opportunities will open up. Yeah, no, and I think that's I, I see. I think that's lost on a lot of people. They you know they they think that maybe a job is beneath them or something like that, and and they just kind of put along when it's really like you said, it's about you know you know, take the lot you have in life and do your absolute best at it, and then and then like that will open up the other doors. Yeah, I mean this is probably where us like um, middle aged fogies could complain about the millennials or something, but um, <laughs> darn darn kids, stay off my no, lawn, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, uh, yeah but you do feel yeah somewhat old fashioned. It's um, I don't know. I think your career has probably been similar in that, you know, we, we always had jobs that weren't the most exciting, but, you know, you do great in the role that you find yourself in. And um, I always remember I had a mentor at GE who would always tell me that. 
sometimes I would say like, I don't know, this guy's getting ahead and he doesn't work hard. And um, my mentor said, she would say like, put your, put your head down, do a great job in the role you're in and like more doors will open up. I want to pause for just a second to tell you about CloudShark. I love CloudShark. It's just like Wireshark, but it's actually web-based. So it can often get you to the answer you're looking for quite a bit faster. And it also allows you to pass around URLs instead of files, which is a lot easier, especially when you're dealing with large capture files. I actually used CloudShark when I was writing my book, Practical Packet Analysis, and I use it at home in my lab to organize and index my packet captures. It's really convenient, has a lot of really cool advanced features like a deep search for matching packets with standard filters and an ability to do ID signature matching within your packet captures. It's all really great stuff. Now, they've created a coupon code just for listeners of this podcast. The code is SOURCECODE17, SOURCECODE17, and listeners of this podcast will get 20% off their first year of CloudShark if they sign up for a yearly count. That's a total of four months for free, and it's a really great deal. Again, I'm a huge fan of CloudShark, and I think you'll like it too. And now, back to Grady. So you you got this job at this uh, at this diesel plant in uh, in um, GE. So what was your first role there? So that was a neat job because it combined a lot of um, manufacturing technology, and um, at the time GE was really into like DFT or demand flow technology, just in time manufacturing, Kanban, like pulling over a lot of principles uh, from like Japanese manufacturing, and so I got to do this really neat hybrid where. Um, Part of it was like uh, working on you know pulling bills of materials so I, uh, for, for our certain parts of the line, and so I'd have to get right into the database and you know write the queries and, and develop little applications. Um, and, and the goal of all this was to see like okay, how quick did we consume the various parts? So if you're making a um, you know a valve or a jacket or, or a particular part for a diesel engine, how quick do you consume the parts? And therefore, you know when you need to order the next ones. And this sounds almost trite now, but it was. 25 years ago uh, or so. And this idea, you know, the old way of manufacturing would be just order a bunch of stuff based on what you thought you'd consume and it would sit in, um, in the warehouse on site and you'd wheel it over when you needed it. And our goal was sort of figure out when we'd actually need to order just in time to get those parts coming up just as we needed them. And so I would get to spend time on the factory floor, um, like literally with a stopwatch, um, doing um, like, I had this class I loved on. Uh, like industrial, what was it called? Um, but basically, the, you know, the the flow of materials and how to optimize it. And so I would do like uh, old, call like Taylor time studies, where you would look at exactly how many seconds did it take for every part of a manufacturing process. So I remember like looking at the part where we build the cylinders, and okay, you know, the guy gets uh, a crane and he moves it over on top of the part. You know, that's 18 seconds, and then it takes. 14 seconds to attach the part and a minute and a half to get it onto the, into the CNC machine. And um, I'd end up with these like pages of notes of how long everything took and we would look for ways to optimize that. So uh, I could probably geek out on this for a while, but it was very fun as somebody just brand new to um, a official corporate working environment to actually get to put on steel toe boots, go out on the factory line, learn how parts are being made and then take that back into the cubicle and figure out, okay, if this is how quick we burn through these various parts, these are the triggers and we need to reorder them. So it was a, a fun job. Yeah. Now at this point, I mean, you, you had a very long career at, at G at this point. I mean, I guess at what point did you think, Hey, maybe like I could have this long career here and then maybe I could end up, you know, uh, much higher on the food chain. Well, you know, that, 
this, definitely not on your mind at the time, but I, uh, I, so that was at GE Transportation, and I did uh, co-op and internship there. I, I worked, I never worked less than 20 hours at that plant per week, um, starting the summer after my sophomore year, so a couple years of working pretty consistently. Um, I did an internship one summer at GE Fanuc, which was our uh, robotics and automation uh, division, and coming out of college, I had offers to go to like GE Lighting, Capital, FANUC, or, or Transportation, or Corporate. And so GE, I mean, one thing, we may talk more about kind of the, the GE career path, but I love how GE was good at presenting a lot of different options, and just a very formal career development path. So I had a, a few opportunities. I decided to go to GE Corporate because I thought headquarters would be cool, and so I, I worked for years in Fairfield, Connecticut. But uh, pretty quickly, you know, you asked, when do I, did I think I could have a career here? To be honest, like I always thought I would retire from GE. Um, I was like the ultimate example of drinking the Kool-Aid. Um, I took on every volunteer opportunity I could. Um, I, I just really threw myself into the career. Um, and this was a time, you know, pre-kids when my wife worked at um, she was, worked at Ernst and Young doing public accounting. So we both worked long hours, and it was typical that you know, I wouldn't leave the office till after nine o'clock, um, you know, every day, and it's just. It was like the GE culture. You just work really hard. But um, because I saw sup- such a cool opportunity for career progression, like, man, I could go work at a financial company. I could work at a broadcaster because we owned NBC at the time. I could go work at a lighting company. Like, why would I need to go anywhere else? Mm-hmm. So I really thought I'd be there forever. Wow. Now, at what point did you really start getting involved with you know the technology side of it, but also specifically the security side of it? Well, that's a really interesting story. Um, I, I really I liked the um, the application side of things, and then got more into infrastructure. And I found myself at a point. I went through the leadership development program there, and there was a point where I was running GE's um, intranet, GE.com, or in, inside GE, it was called. And then a friend of mine who was running the GE.com, the external website, left, and I they put them both under me. And so I thought, man, this is this is great. I'm running, you know one of the world's biggest company intranets, which at the time the intranet was a, a really big deal. It was the homepage for every GE employee. It's where we published news and resources. Um, we had 450,000 you know, regular visitors to the page because it was a homepage for everybody. Um, and I was running GE.com. And at the time it was just, I mean, we had just re-architected the thing. We were using Sun V880s, which were like the cutting edge. This was back when like you know, you would deploy your own servers to run your, it's just funny looking back how quickly things have changed in 20 years, but, you know, we'd be responsible for everything from procuring the hardware and getting it set up to, uh, we built everything on iPlanet portal server because portals were the hot thing then. So I just thought like, this is it. Like, why would I ever want to do anything else? I was fortunate. One thing GE was so good about was just pushing you constantly at every step of your career. So here I was, I don't know, in my low twenties, or mid twenties, and I had a team of probably thirty people um, uh, that, that were building these, you know, the internet and the internet. And then I had a friend, um, Carolyn Bardani, who ran corporate security, and she was probably GE's first CISO by title. You know, we'd always had somebody responsible for security, but she might have been the first to carry that title. And she had a team, probably three or four people. I mean, think about that—the the CISO of GE at the time with, with three or four. <laughs> wow! <people>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, security was. Sometimes I just reflect on how quick our our space has evolved, you know. Um, and she said, "Hey, this application security, web security is becoming a thing." We were, of course, had 
at that point, had, were well into building web applications, and there were not a lot of tech standards. It was a mishmash of everything from, you know, kind of J2EE type applications to ASP and PHP. And she said, we need to start testing our apps. Um, why don't you come over and start this application security stuff? And, you know, it was funny. I, I, I really resisted it because it was an individual contributor role. And at GE, you know, it was so much about the career progression. I said, like, Carolyn, I can't do that. I have a team of, you know, a pretty big team. Um, I want to keep growing this on this path. And she's like, I think you're making a mistake. Like, I think the security thing has got potential. Um, and so, I, you know, I said, you know, okay, against my better judgment, I'll come over and, and join the security team. And one thing I'm, I think I miss about and this is something you've probably thought a lot about, Chris, because I know you've thought a lot about careers and expertise and, and development and security. But, mm-hmm. I mean, it was a time when with – I mean, I had web development experience, of course. I'd been a web developer for a long time. Um, but I had no qualifications in security. But that was a time when security was new, and she just said, learn it, you know, figure it out. So I remember getting, like, it's like Burp Proxy or one of the, you know, the early uh, proxies and kind of teaching myself um, web app penetration testing. And, you know, this wasn't the dark day. I mean, this wasn't so early in security. There weren't resources, um, but, you know, you couldn't really Google things. In fact, Google didn't come along until a little bit later. But I remember getting books and and reading about how to pen test web apps and started to get pretty good at it for the time. Um, And it had just opened up a whole new world. Like, wow, wait a minute. Like, I can just go manipulate these, um, you know, these post variables or these headers. or, you know, at the time, it was so much low-hanging fruit. I mean, I was no, like, expert pen tester, but this is when everybody would just pass uh, variables in the query string itself in the mm-hmm. URI, and you just go manipulate that and, and just find gaping holes in publicly-facing web apps. So we made a lot of hay there. We ended up um, – this was a time when GE was consolidating IT in a pretty big way, and so we built up a team of about uh, 50 web app security testers, um, mostly offshore and we had this center of excellence where we would test web apps for the company, and we got really good at it, and it was a neat program. But that was my first foray into security, kind of against my better judgment, I thought, um, and taking a, frankly, like a backward step in terms of career progression. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, people probably hate hearing this story because I use it a lot when I, I talk to, to people on my team now or if I'm mentoring somebody. It's like, know, to me, it worked out for me, and I'm not saying it works for everybody, but I think we have to be willing to take what might be perceived as like a lateral move or even a slight backward move uh, to get into a new space. And, um, you know, I think more often than not, people are richer for the experience of doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when, at what point did you start? I mean, GE Cert, I mean, we all know, you know, the, the great wealth of talent that came out of that. Can you tell me a little bit about kind of the story? You were instrumental in starting that, like the story of how that came to be? Oh, yeah, that, that's a really, it's a fun story. And it's neat looking back at um, kind of who we had on the team. But, what had happened was um, we were just starting to grow the team. When, when I became CISO of GE, we had five or six people on the team. And I had been reading, and also this was a heyday of blogging, right? Blogging and RSS readers and um, I'm kind of a, a voracious reader. And I always had like a full uh, RSS feed of news. And I remember really liking this one blog, the style security blog by this guy, Richard Bajitlik or something, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Baitlik, but none of you know we didn't know how to say his name then. And so I, I was a big fan of reading Richard Baitlik, and he really got me turned on to network security monitoring. And it was just so weird. Uh, I, I had an open headcount on my team, 
And I was either going to hire like a network security person. At the time, we had the team. We had like endpoint security, network security, kind of governance. And, you know, we divide the team up that way. And I had an open network security role. And it just so happened that I, I was reading his blog and he posted, you know, I'm thinking about getting out of uh, consulting. I think I'd like to try an enterprise job for a change and kind of apply what I've done in consulting you know, to a real, a bigger company. And I just found his email address, shot him a note and said, hey, I saw your blog. I'm the CISO GE. You know, would you ever be interested in talking? He wrote me right back. And uh, yeah, at the time, this was really, I think, in the infancy of corporate certs. So I had this network security role in mind. And Richard said, have you ever thought about like an incident response leader? I thought, yeah, yeah we could probably use that. And man, talk about timing being good. Richard came on and for a while, he used to joke, people would say, refer to Richard's team. And he was an army of one. You know, it was, he was, it was just him. And kind of then we got that call. And um, it, the, the story is, is pretty interesting. We, we first got a call, and, and I'll be careful not, I mean, it's been you know, 15 years, so I don't think I'm giving away too much, but I'll, I'll still be careful in what I say. But we got a call um, to, from the NCIS, and the call came in um, to my uh, friend Brad Maiorino, who was like the deputy CISO under me at the time. And NCIS had just called the GE main number, Fairfield, Connecticut, looked it up, you know, online, and called and said, I want to speak to someone in security. And they routed them to me. I wasn't in my office, and they routed it over to Brad. And he actually hung up on them uh, because they said, we're from NCIS, and we want to talk to you about suspected, you know, actors in your network or something. And he thought it was a prank because <laughs> NCIS was like the number one rated show at the time. And so he thought someone was just being corny and like whoever talked about like actors in your network, uh-huh. it was just, it was weird because up to this point, we just take it for granted now, but up to this point it was like AV, you know what I mean? You just, you stop bad guys with AV. And so, um, you know, one thing led to another and we, we realized that, um, you know, like so many companies at the time, you know, G was grappling with issues of you know, state sponsored espionage and, um, I should say, I think it's handled them in an exemplary way. Um, and by the way, G has spoken publicly about this in other forums, so I'm not, not giving anything away that hasn't mm-hmm. been said already. Um, but, you know, so Richard was our guy. We're like, Richard, it's yours. <laughs> and he said, uh, the first thing he says, hey, there's this new company, this startup called Mandiant. Like, we should probably talk to them. You know, they do a lot of this. And so that was my introduction to Mandia, uh, to Mandiant. And it was at a time when if you called Mandiant, like you would get Kevin Mandia. Mm-hmm. So Kevin came up to us and talked about uh, the thread and gave us a lot of background. But that's when we started growing the team, and that's when we formed GE Cert. And, um, I mean, you know, it's people leave their marks on organizations in ways that, you know, 10 years, 15 years after the fact, people don't remember kind of who started it. But, man, Richard was, like, so instrumental in building – you know, this like security culture and this excellence and in incident response that I, I think despite many, many changes, like the DNA of that is still there today. And Richard was unique because he was amazing at attracting good talent. And as we started to get more open headcount to fill the team, um, we grew up pretty quick. I think I had six or eight people in the first year. And, and when I left, we had I think, 42 people in GE Cert and it's since grown much, much bigger. Um, but Richard just attracted such good people. And that's you know, it, again, it's it sounds obvious, but having the best people, I mean, it means more than all the technology in the world. And so, yeah, yeah, Richard went and hired a, a bunch of great people who have gone on. I mean, look at um, the kind of the, where everyone has gone since then. And there's just so many people who have that GE security team experience, both part of the GE cert, but also 
you know, in, in other parts of GE security, just people have gone on to do really good things. Yeah, you know, I always had this theory that basically anyone who's doing any type of, of network security monitoring can at some point trace their lineage back to either GE or the military. Um, like, like it's going to fork into one of those two things. Of course, Richard, you know, falls into both of those kind of chains. Um, but it's it's just interesting. You don't you don't find too many people doing NSM for a living that can't at some point trace their lineage back to GE or having worked for someone who worked at GE at that time. Yeah, you're right. It, it's it's amazing. Um, there's yeah, I kind of when you look around the industry, it's amazing. You know, I just saw Brian Minnick, who was uh, the CISO for GE Aviation and was uh, big in NSM, just sold his company to to Booz Allen Hamilton. Uh, he had started a company called Morphic, and mm-hmm. funny enough, you know, Booz Allen Hamilton, um, you know, one of their lead security partners is Brad Myerino, who was our, our uh, deputy CISO at the time. And then um, look in the GE cert, and I mean, man, the, the people who have, have come out of that, you know many of them. Mm-hmm. Some have gone on to really great careers. I, I still get to work with many of them today. I mean, Mike Reeves is on my team today, who was one of our, our chief architects of um, the NSM program that we deployed there. So. Yeah, probably one of the the guys I know who knows more about NSM sensors than anybody on the planet, right? So that's yeah, and that's because he yeah. learned how to do it at GE. Yeah, right, right, yeah. cool. And, and another case where you know he he was a, a sharp guy, but got to cut his teeth on building that stuff in a really big way at GE. Mm-hmm. Now you said earlier that you know you kind of envisioned that you would retire from GE, but of course you don't work at GE now, and you're not retired. So tell yeah. me, so tell me, you know, obviously at some point I think I might be skipping a step, but you ended you ended up at Mandiant before it was FireEye. So talk to me a little bit about that transition. Yeah, so I was uh, I'd been CISO of GE for about four and a half years, and one of the things I said I loved about the GE kind of career development was they always push you into something new and have these competencies um, that you're expected to check off on your way to the pinnacle, uh, which is like being a CIO. And I just, I absolutely loved security. I thought like, this is where I want to be. And, um, and GE would say, hey, so to continue to develop your career, you should go run an ERP system over at, at aviation, or you should go, um, you know, work on supply chain technology, at GE water. And, um, I don't fault the company for that. Those were amazing career opportunities, but I wanted to be in security. And at a certain point, it became clear that um, you know GE didn't really want to have a 20-year CISO in one job, and it just didn't really align with the way you know you moved up at GE. So I went to Ernst and Young for a year and a half, and uh, I'm grateful for that opportunity. I got to go be a, a principal, helping to run the consulting business. I met so many great people. I think most importantly. Uh, I learned consulting at, at Ernst & Young, just how to be a professional consultant and you know what it means to do a great job for a client. And I, I started to learn how to sell you know, as a partner um, at a big four. You have to do a lot of selling and running engagements. So that was good experience. And even though it was a relatively quick stint, I don't think I could have been successful at Mandiant without doing that. And so um, after about a year and a half, and remember now I had known Kevin Mandia and Mandiant for a while. Um, and I had I'd always spoken at Mircon uh, since the very first Mircon, and you might remember some of those, but those were just mm-hmm. such great events. That's for those who don't know, that was um, Mandiant's annual incident response conference. But I always spoken there, and I was at Mircon one year, and Travis Reese, um, who was our, our president and still is our president of FireEye, was like, "Hey, you know, have you ever thought about coming over here to Mandiant?" And it was just uh, an exciting opportunity that couldn't pass up. So that's how I got over to Mandiant. Yeah. Now, how big was Mandiant when you joined at the time? It was about 190 people, um, and the vast majority of that was consultants still. We hadn't really started building out kind of a, a company proper. In fact, Kevin has always been proud of the fact 
and I really admire this, that, you know, he didn't hire a sales, like a sales lead until, you know, we were probably close to 50 million in revenue. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, we had a few salespeople, but he hired his first like VP of sales and we were right around 50 million. And um, Kevin has always believed and has really instilled this in, in me. I would take it forward if I ever worked at a startup that, you know, you should have a, like a good customer base. Like you should prove yourself on virtue of the product and the services you build, um, not on having like a slick sales team. Uh, and at some point, of course, you do need salespeople and they're, they're critical. But uh, Kevin was big on not, not building out a lot of like executive ranks until the company was doing really well. Yeah. Now the thing I think everybody always tells me about Kevin, I think Richard told me this when I, when I talked to him about Kevin was that Kevin is one of those guys you talk to for five minutes and you realize he really wants to change the world and believes he can. Was, was that any part of that instrumental in pulling you over to Mandiant? Oh, totally. Um, I mean, very much Kevin and his personality and his, yeah, his just passion for doing the right thing. Um, but the neat thing was like that DNA infected everybody in the company and, we had a very mission-driven culture that just, um, you know, at the time our, our tagline was uh, "Find evil, solve crime." And like that's why you came there. Um, I think you know the sort of the the pay and the benefits like was almost secondary. Like you wanted to be at Mandiant because of that incredible mission that they had, and they were the only ones doing what they did at the time. I want to pause for a minute and tell you about one of our newest sponsors, Ninja Jobs. Now, y'all know my advertising policy in this podcast. I only advertise for things that I actually like, and I really like Ninja Jobs. It certainly falls in that category. Ninja Jobs is the premier job platform used by thousands of cybersecurity professionals. And that's whether you're looking for a job or trying to fill one, Ninja Jobs has you covered. If you're considering a change in your job or just looking for your new challenge, or maybe you just want to see what's out there, Ninja Jobs is a free platform with hundreds of jobs posted weekly. You can register for free and begin your search right now. Now, on the flip side, say you're struggling to find top talent for your organization. You're having trouble filling a specific position. Skip the recruiters and head over to Ninja Jobs. You can register for free, and you actually have a special promo code for listeners of this podcast. The promo code is the source T H E S O U R C E the source, and that'll give you ten percent off your first job listing. If you're looking for a job or looking to fill one, I highly recommend you spend some time and look at Ninja Jobs. I think you'll like what you see. And now back to Grady. Now you've been there for a long time. Of course, we worked together for a little bit of time there. I joined, you know, Mandiant initially, right, just right about the same time the acquisition with FireEye occurred, and so you've you've seen a lot of change um, occur with the company. Obviously, Mandiant itself grew dramatically, and and now with FireEye and it, it, a lot of significant change. You've taken on, you know, there's there's products instead of just consulting, mm-hmm. um, and you really have this whole dynamic of taking this really East Coast Mandiant company and the West Coast FireEye company that were kind of very cold culturally different in, in combining those together. So lots of different change. What's what's, yeah. re- what's really been the most significant that you've observed? Well, you're right. It was, in some ways, a lot of people thought the acquisition wouldn't work because it was such an acquisition of opposites. I mean, East Coast and West Coast and and like the epitome of both of those cultures. I mean, um, you know, Kevin wore a suit and tie every single day to work, as did Travis Reese. Um, and, and really many of us, I think most days in the office, I wore a suit and tie as well. And it wasn't mandatory or anything, but it was just sort of you did. I mean, we were a, a company based just outside of Washington, D.C., very much a suit and tie town. Um, it was very mission driven and uh, it was a services, primarily a services company, although we did have um, MIR, uh, our Mandiant Intelligent Response product. And of course, as you know, we were just about to launch TAP, our threat analytics platform, when mm-hmm. we got acquired. 
Um, and then you had FireEye, which was um, a more casual West Coast Silicon Valley company. Um, and I, but I think the biggest difference here, and this isn't a criticism, but merely an observation of where the companies were, is Mandiant was a private company and FireEye was a public company. And that like that distinction runs deep because as a private company, um, you know the, the CEO can make a decision, the, the exec team can make a decision about where we want to invest and how to spend. Uh, and we didn't have to worry about growth per se, although we, we, we were naturally growing very fast. You had more latitude and, and freedom to sort of focus on the mission. Uh, FireEye, of course, is a public company. And I, I firmly believe that once you choose to go public and, and you have share public shareholders, like your duty is to maximize the return for those shareholders. Um, and that was the kind of the epitome of the culture clash was, uh, you know, a public company that had to grow every quarter and had to show, you know, very rapid growth versus a company that was much more mission-focused. Um, I would say what's really remarkable about it is, you know, fast forward now, I've been at the company coming up on six years, I think we're four years into the acquisition, and Kevin Mandy is the CEO, Travis Reese is the president, I'm the CTO, we have guys like John LaLiberty now runs um, about half of our engineering, leads engineering for kind of all of our emerging products. And we still, I, I look around the company and, sometimes have to like pinch myself that it's amazing how much talent is still here. And we've, we've obviously lost people over the four years, but you know, guys like Christopher Glyer or Marshall Heilman or Charles Carmichael or, you know, Michael Sikorsky, like just a lot of guys who are the core of Mandiant still here and, and still being very influential in the company's direction, which is neat. Mm -hmm. Now security kind of has this reputation for being a little bit self cannibalistic and the, the, there seems to always be a, a target on the back of vendors and probably no more than no, no place more than, than fire. right? People, it, it, people like to throw darts and, and you know, when you guys have successes, sometimes they're maybe a little more muffled than they should be. And when you guys have failures, they're very much more amplified um, than a lot of places. And, and is that something that, bothers you or is it something you're, you're even aware of or have you completely tuned it out? Yeah, we're really aware of it. And, you know, sometimes, um, I mean, you read what's being said on, on Twitter, for example, and there's, there are a lot of darts. Um, there's a lot of criticism of the industry, but honestly, like it's 90% deserved. And, and we've created this problem ourselves. I mean, our industry, we could talk for a whole nother hour about kind of the challenges our industry faces, but it's an industry that has thrived off of, creating, you know, FUD for a long time and convincing people, you know, that they need things they don't. Um, you know, I look at some of our customers and it, one thing I, I love about being at FireEye is I can go to a customer and they say, look, what do we need? And I look around, and I see they have massive amounts of shelfware and, you know, boxes racked that they never use. And I can say like, look, you know, I think there's probably a time and a place where you're going to need FireEye products, but right now you just need to hire some people and get some processes in place. And, um, I think that's being frank and honest with a customer like that is good in the long run, um, but but that's not the norm for our industry. And I think, you know, it's yeah, it's unfortunate, but but we're we're trying to build at FireEye. I, I'm confident we're building products that customers really need, and we help them kind of take it in bite-sized chunks when they can use it. But yeah, our industry deserves a lot of the criticism it gets. I, I would say for me personally, it probably affects how I, I talk like as a representative of the company, I, I certainly like this one small example, like I don't tweet as freely as I probably would otherwise, because anything I say, I, I've just noticed tends to be viewed somewhat cynically or self-serving, even if it's, if it's not meant that way, you know? 
Yeah, understood. I, if only our president would take the same uh, the same Gosh, strategy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Good luck. Um, so you know, one of the one of the areas I like to talk about is small business, and and you know, you and I have talked about this this plenty in, in the past. Is I've always felt that security companies and security as an industry in general kind of tends to ignore small business a little bit. We build solutions that are really more designed for for really well-staffed organizations or that just price small businesses out of the game. So, I mean, is that something you, you agree with that sentiment or and, and do you think there's there's relief coming? I mean, what do you think security looks like for small businesses and how can we better enable that? Yeah, this is one of the things that uh, it's probably most disappointing to me is how underserved that sector is in general. And so I can tell you, We've thought a lot at FireEye about how we can help with that. Uh, I mean, the f- frank reality is it, it, it can be tough. You know, for a company like FireEye, a public company um, that's really cut our teeth on what we'd call the enterprise 1A bigger market, um, it, you can't just pivot to that overnight because you want to. And so we often think, you know, does it make sense to, to dip down more into that market? And I, I'm proud of the fact that um, with, with what we've done with FireEye Helix, and, and by the way, not trying to plug the product at all, but I, we've consciously gone in and said, how can we have like a lower entry point for our products? Because look, our reputation in the industry was super expensive, high-end products. And I'm really pleased now that a customer can get into our product for like a really reasonable cost and, and start to like get enterprise-grade protection. Um, but still, you know, we're not serving the company that's got one IT person or a half-time security person. And yet I continually see those companies just being hammered and it, it concerns me a lot. Mm-hmm. Now, if I go, uh, let's say I go in January, or February, or whenever to RSA and, and walk the floor, I'm going to hear about a lot of different things that will solve all my problems. Um, mm-hmm. I'd like, I'd love your opinion on, you know, tell me, you know, we talk about these buzzword technologies, and some of them maybe actually are buzzwords, and some of them are actually meaningful. What's one technology that you think, um, you know, will is kind of overhyped, and one that you think is underhyped? If you, if you have thoughts on that. <sighs> Yeah. Okay. So one that comes right to mind with overhype is blockchain. And I'll tell you, when blockchain a year or two ago really started to enter the, the lexicon, I thought, I got to I gotta really dig into this and understand it. And so I did. And I started talking to some blockchain vendors. And it was really interesting to hear vendors coming in with like, you know, you need us. Here's how we're going to solve your problems. And then you actually listen to the use cases. And I tell you, there was such a dissonance, Chris. I thought, like, I'm a, what am I missing? I, I, I don't. I must be like this is over my head or something because I don't see how this really changes the game in security. And needless to say, there's a lot of great application. Well, maybe that's even an exaggeration. There is some application for blockchain um, outside cryptocurrency. I think we'll see it more in fintech and government, but um, and, and maybe we'll see some emerging applications in security. But a lot of the use cases that they were pitching me, like, hey, we can guarantee that you're your uh, signatures and your product never get tampered with. And I just thought that's just not, that's not like one of my top 1000 needs right now. Uh-huh. Maybe it will be at some point, but blockchain I think has gotten a lot of hype. If I could throw one more into um, maybe an obvious one with machine learning and artificial intelligence, um, there's clearly a place for it. It's just disappointing how much the industry has hyped that uh, when it's, I mean, it's, it's computer science, it's math. It's, it's to me, it's sort of a natural evolution of where our industry goes um, unless just a super sexy buzzword, but we're going to be hearing more and more about that one. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as what I think is cool, um, not so much a tech, but let me like a a, um, a concept is making it so that we explain like stories better to users. Uh, we're working on some tech. Um, well, in fact, you'll laugh at this one, Chris. But one of the the things that 
I talk about most in our products is something called guided investigations. Ah, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm not just saying that because we're talking, but it it really is what excites me. And and, uh, for people who might be listening, um, Chris actually created this concept uh, in our um, TAP product, and it's now in our Helix product. Um, But our users have are just inundated with data. There's so much data. And we do a pretty good job at finding bad stuff in that data through machine learning or patterns or whatever it may be. But for so long, our industry has been like on the input side, like here's an alert. And our, our customers, when you sit down with them and you say, hey, take me through what you do here, and I'm preaching to the choir with you, Chris, um, they're like, I don't know where to start. And so guided investigations was a neat way that you came up with uh, where we could give the user um, like toeholds to continue their investigation. So you could take a less experienced analyst and say, hey, you have an alert. Here's some other things that you probably should look at. You know, where else has this user logged in? Where else have we seen this malware? Where else have we seen this beaconing? Are there any other alerts for this user? And it was a neat way of codifying the knowledge that experts like you had and Helping, using it to like give a helping hand uh, to an, an analyst, and we're doing some other things too that we'll be announcing in the next few months to like help tell a story better by like chaining together things of interest across an endpoint and the network and presenting it in a really easy to to view and easy to consume way. So, uh, you know, like I said, I, I think the like the next generation of security tools have to continue to be great at detection and prevention, but the really great products are the ones that are going to help users get better at understanding like what to do next and we could go talk about you know orchestration automation and that's hugely central to our strategy but it all starts with just helping the user understand what they're seeing on the screen that's uh, that's music to my ears for a lot of reasons <laughs> <laughs> um oh you know one other i, I throw out there. i know you just asked for one but this no, just go ahead into my, um not so much like a enterprise security tech but something i've been thinking a lot about lately uh, I'm a, a director at Netgear, and at Netgear we make these really great video cameras called Arlo, um, and they're these wireless, um, you know, totally, you can put them anywhere around your house. Um, but I've been thinking a lot about like the convergence of like video and analytics and security, and um, I, don't, I read a, um, you, you probably read it too, but Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash. Um, did you ever read that book? I've not. No. Yeah, it's it's good. It, it, it's it's like 25 years old now, but. In, in it, there's like a central intelligence agency, and people um, can be what they called stringers in the book, where you just you can upload bits of video up to the central intelligence agency, and anytime they get a hit uh, and they're combing through the data, you get paid. And so it's like a way you can like free be a freelance intel um, hmm. collector. Um, I often think, you know, I, I'm glad Netgear is run with the best ethics and integrity of any company I've seen, but it's not hard to imagine a, a less scrupulous um, vendor saying, hey, you can get our video service free uh, if you'll aim a camera at the street and let us monetize that. And at first, it might be monetized for sort of innocuous things like you know traffic counts and understanding who passes by a certain store and who goes in a store. But it's not hard to imagine that being used for, I guess, kind of more sinister purposes with you know, facial recognition, you can start to develop like a big database of who is where at any time, just based on sort of freelance uploads um, to a to a video service. So that's probably like super right field from what you were talking about. But I, I've been grappling with that more lately. Like, what's the intersection of you know, as we get kind of more pervasive intelligence collection, better analytics, more pervasive video. Uh, I think it's going to have interesting security implications. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know you're a, a very learned guy, and you're, you said you're earlier you're a voracious reader, and you understand and appreciate history. So, you know, if you you know if you were to fast forward ten or twenty years from now and look back at FireEye's place in history during this this 
past decade. What, mm. what do you think people will say about it? That's an interesting question. You know, uh, I think people will look back at the APT1 report from 2013 as, I mean, this is like a cliched term, but like a watershed moment for security. Um, it really was like it was such a wake-up call for everybody. And uh, it's amazing. There's so many good companies now that are releasing great similar reports to that. On, on like almost a weekly or monthly basis, you find a great report. Um, but I think APT1 was the one that like kind of, it caused the dam to break on that. And, and for the first time, people were really talking about the scope of the threat and the magnitude of what we face. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that that, uh, that report changed the industry. Wow. Yeah. Well, obviously, a lot more history to make here, and I'll, I'll get you out of here on this final question. And this is really the, the question I ask everybody: is if someone's listening to this and and they want to be like Grady, they want to be the uh, the the CISO of GE or the CTO of, of FireEye of a large security company one day, what advice would you give them? Hmm. Well, you know, I I think the, the one piece of advice would be to just stay technical and go deep um, as much as you can early in your career. I, I do talk to a lot of um, folks who are rising up through the career, and there's this desire to like grow a big team and run a budget really quickly. But uh, what what has probably served me best in my career is having a, a good technical foundation, where for years it you know it was hands on keyboard. And look, I'm not half as technical as a lot of the folks here at, at Mandiant, but. Um, I, I always encourage people like get technical deep, uh, regardless of what you want to do with your career. If you want to go up into management, um, because that foundation is, is just critical. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's great advice. Well, Grady, thank you so much. I always learn something when I talk to you, and I even have a, a book I'm going to go buy after this and and, and read as well. So that's, uh, that's awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Chris. Great talking with you. Now, as listeners to the podcast know, our guests each get to pick a charity to support. And thanks to the sponsors of the podcast, we make a contribution to that charity in their name. Here, Grady chose to support Love and Grace Haiti, which is an orphanage that cares for about 25 orphan boys and helps provide an education for them in the country of Haiti. Uh, Grady, of course, has a personal connection to this charity as a friend of his actually started it. So go ahead and take a look at lovinggracehaiti.com and learn about the very important mission they've got going on there. We're really glad to support that charity and support Grady's love and interest for what's going on there. Now, of course, be sure and thank Grady for his time. As he mentioned, he's not too active on Twitter, but he is on there. You can find him at GradyS on Twitter. You can also tweet at FireEye to, let, to thank them and let them uh, uh, know that we appreciate us borrowing Grady for an hour uh, of his time. As always, I love to hear feedback as well. You can find me on Twitter at ChrisSanders88. I know we're coming up on the holidays real soon. Uh, we'll have another podcast episode in two weeks, so just before Christmas, another exciting guest lined up. We'll look forward to talking to you then again. So as always, remember, it's a beautiful day. Catch back, guys.